Take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Ruth. Ruth, in the Old Testament, we're going to be journeying through the entire little book, four chapters, beginning in Ruth 1. It's Alfred Lord Tennyson who first penned these words. "'Tis better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all." That sounds good on a Hallmark card, but that's a hard truth to live out, isn't it, if you've ever been through loss? And we live in a season where more people are experiencing greater loss than probably any time in history. All of us have lost someone that we know personally, that we've loved. And we seek to go forward while we're navigating the void, the gap that is created by loss. And this happens throughout our life, whether it be from death, whether it be in the midst of divorce, whether it be job transitions, career change, friendships that have cast us aside. Part of the human existence is navigating this reality of loss, and it's, it's challenging. It's, it's not easy. It is easy to give up hope, to despair. And so we're seeing an increase in that in society. Suicide rates among all ages are at an all-time high. Among teenagers, we're watching more consider taking their lives maybe than any other point in history. And so the temptation in the context of loss is just to walk away and to say, I'm done, to wash our hands with it all. And yet that's not the message of Scripture. That's not the hope of the gospel. That's not the power we live in as followers of Christ. We, we have a God who is known for his redemption We have a God who is known as the God of the second chance. We we have a God who is full of hope and promise. And that affects every story, even the love stories of our lives. We've been looking in Scripture at these different biblical characters. I want to remind you, anytime we see people in the Bible, that's always for one purpose— It's ultimately to point us to God. It's not a book about men. It's a book about God. But when we look to these men and these women in Scripture, we can see how much we need God and how God worked in their lives. And that can be an encouragement to us, like it was for Adam and Eve. And in that story, I I gave you four words that really defined their relationship and that help us as we seek to have relationships that are honoring to Christ. The first word was identity. I reminded you, you're really not ready to have a relationship with another person until you understand who you are. You've accepted your identity as an image bearer of God, your identity in Christ. Second word was authority because in every relationship, you've you've got to acknowledge you're not the ultimate authority. You come up under authority, and our authority as God-fearing people, as, as followers of Jesus, is God's Word. So we have the guidelines and the guardrails of Scripture that become our authority. But then we seek to be with a person that's compatible to us. So that was the third word, compatibility, because when God created Eve from Adam's side, He, he gave Adam someone that was like him. Every time I hear that story, I think about the little boy that was just 
writhing in pain on the floor. He was, he was holding his, his stomach and he was crying. And, and his mom said, son, what's wrong? Do you have a tummy ache? And he said, no, I think I'm having a wife. You'll figure that out eventually. That fourth word was intentionality. Intentionality, the acknowledgement that every relationship, even one created in the Garden of Eden, is a relationship that's going to require work. And it begins with that leaving and then continues in cleaving and then the interweaving of our lives together, Adam and Eve. Then we talked about Abram and Sarah and <laughs> what a relationship these two were. Uh, we said they could have been on the Jerry Springer show because there are, again, three words define their relationship. Two of them negative, only one positive. Uh, one of the negative words was fear because when fear guides us and governs our life, we do stupid things. And so like Abraham, Abraham, on two different occasions, he told other people that his wife was his sister. <laughs> Bad news. And that was not a good plan. Um, then we talked about the danger of the flesh. The flesh was that second word, how when we want to appease our, our flesh and do things our way, that too is going to get us into trouble. So we, we talked about how when Sarah couldn't have a baby, she had this bright idea of looking at her maid and saying, uh, Abraham, why don't you have sexual relationships with my maid and she can have you a child? And that was a great idea until that was a dumb idea. The flesh. But there was a third word that defined these two, and that's the word faith. Because after a long life, God gave them the desires of their heart. He gave them a child. And the Lord provided and as we look at biblical relationships and you think about where you are in your relationship with God and with other people, I just want you to know you can be a person of faith. God will be faithful. He, he will provide. And so today we look at really one of the most familiar love stories in the Bible. It's the story of Ruth and Boaz, and it's, it's contained in these four chapters of Ruth. And it's pretty powerful, but it, it has a rough beginning because before we're ever introduced to Ruth or Boaz, we're introduced to the man who, who would become Ruth's father-in-law. It's a man named Elimelech. And he teaches us something. And it, it teaches us how, man, some stories start out bad and they come to a crossroads. They could get worse or they could turn better. Look in Ruth chapter 1 and verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Now, when the judges ruled, we know something about that. Moses was leading the children of Israel through the wilderness toward the promised land. His lieutenant, Joshua, takes over when Moses dies. He leads them into the promised land, right? They have fruitful time in the land of Canaan, in the promised land. But when Joshua dies, the Bible says that the, the people went into a period where judges ruled. There wasn't a leader, but judges ruled. And the Bible says that people began to do what was right in their own eyes. Rather than being governed and guided by God, they just did what was right in their own eyes. So in the days of judges, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, and he and his wife had two sons. This man's name was Elimelech, we're told. And that's a name that means God is my king. But... This man named Elimelech lived in such a way that it didn't look like God was his king. And in that sense, he probably has something in common with some of us. It's one thing to say we are Christ followers. It's another thing for our lifestyle to model that. 
So what did Elimelech do instead of trusting God in the season of famine, since he was in that season of the judges where he did what was right in his eyes? He left Bethlehem, which means house of bread, and he went to go to find his own provision. And he did that going to a place God said not to go, a place named Moab. And so not only did Elimelech go here, but he takes his family and his sons eventually grow up and marry daughters who are Moabite women. And this complicates the picture much more because God had specifically said to the children of Israel, do not do that. Do not marry Moabite women. But they did. And then early in the first few pages of the book of Ruth, we realize something terrible happens. It's really foreshadowing. Because, you know, the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 3 that all of us are sinners. You know what that means? We've all fallen short of God's design. We've all done things that God said don't do. We've all not done things that God said do. So we're all sinners. And the Bible goes on to tell us that the punishment or the wage, the payment of sin is death. That's always been the case. And that's the case in the book of Ruth. So Elimelech, he takes his family, he goes to this land God told him not to go. His sons do something God told them not to do. And guess what? There are three deaths. Elimelech dies. And both of his sons die. And so this story begins by introducing three widows. A mother-in-law and her two daughter-in-laws who are in the midst of this great distress, in the midst of deep grief. And before we can even get into the story of redemption, I, I think there's something we've got to see. Sinful choices are always paid for on an installment plan. The wrong decision you make today will cost you dearly tomorrow. Internalize that truth. Because in the heat of the moment, when we're making a bad decision, whether it's in a relationship or any area of our life, we think we can handle it. But I'm telling you, sin always takes you further than you want to go. It always keeps you longer than you want to stay, and it always costs you more than you want to pay. But there's good news, praise the Lord. Your past is not your future when God's redeeming power is at work. Amen? Our God is a redemptive God. And when his hand begins to touch your life and when he redeems you, he says you might be described by your past, but you need not be defined by your past. He is a God who takes you where you are, but he doesn't leave you there. He molds you and he shapes you into his image. And so this story that begins so poorly has a tremendous ending so I just need to get you to the ending so you can understand where we're going. In the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 1, God begins to give us the human lineage of Jesus the Christ. Now, from a divine standpoint, we know he's coming from the portals of heaven. But from a human standpoint, you can trace the lineage of Jesus all the way back to the beginning of time. And I just want you to peek in and see one little glimpse, a part of that lineage. It's in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 5. Listen to this. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. Do you understand what's taking place here? God, God took a lady that was a pagan widow woman and he put her in the lineage of a king. 
but not just a king. He put her in the lineage of the king. Now, you've heard about Ruth before, but maybe you haven't heard about the man that would be her husband. He's also listed in this lineage. His name is Boaz, and maybe you just learned something about Boaz you didn't know. Because in this lineage, we find out who Boaz's mama was. What was Boaz's mama's name? It was Rahab. What was Rahab's profession? She was a prostitute. She was a hooker. She was a whore. And yet God took that story and he redeemed it for his glory. That's what God does. God is a redeeming God. So I want to I ask you before we begin, what does God need to take in your story and redeem for his glory? Maybe it's something in a relationship. Maybe it's your singleness. Maybe it's a marriage. Maybe it's a divorce. Maybe it's the pain of death. I want you to have hope today because all of the Bible and and this snapshot we're seeing today, it's a message of hope. It's a story of redemption. It's the power of God's healing touch. Let's pray together. So, Father, I thank you today for the chance once again to hear your perfect word. I thank you that you are a redeeming God. Jesus, I thank you that at the expense of your life, you paid the price to give us hope. God, I thank you that that forgiveness and grace means that we can start again and afresh no matter what we've been through. And we can see your hand at work in us. And Lord, we need that today. We're desperate for you. So teach us what we need to know. Give us what we need to have. Make us more like you, Jesus. Father, I pray that as I communicate this truth, that my words would be your words. That my thoughts would be your thoughts. Speak. And then, Lord, we specifically ask that the result of this time together would be Healing in broken relationships. Preparation for healthy relationships. And salvation. That most important relationship of all. So do what only you can do as the God who is our Redeemer. And we ask this in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen. We don't have time to read this whole book of Ruth. So can I just tell you the story? It starts off, as I've mentioned, with despair. So Naomi and and Ruth and and Ruth's sister-in-law, a lady named Orpha, they are widowed. And so Naomi does what she knows to do. She says, we need to go back to our homeland. Let's go back to Bethlehem. We're in this foreign land. But she knew that her two daughter-in-laws were daughters of that foreign land. They were Moabites. And, and, and so she says to them, you guys, you go do your thing. I'm going to go do my thing. In fact, I, I'm an old lady. Even if I found another man and I had another child, you would have to wait for that child to grow up to be your husband. So you don't have any hope with me. You go find a man and I'll go, I'll go live my life. 
And one daughter-in-law, that daughter-in-law named Orpha, she said, okay, <laughs> see ya. It was nice knowing you. But then we come across this daughter named Ruth. And Ruth says, no chance. I'm not leaving you. You're stuck with me, Naomi. If you want to leave, I'm coming with you. And, and those people that are part of your family, they're going to be part of my family. And in fact, the God you worship, that's the God I want to worship. And until we die, you're stuck with me. And so they leave and they go back to Bethlehem. And from that moment of despair, we begin to see God's direction. And I want you to know that that can be true of you today. In the midst of despair, God will direct you. The Bible says we make our plans, but, but he directs our, our steps. And, and so they go to Bethlehem, and Ruth begins to recognize that they need food to survive. And, and so she says to Naomi, hey, I'm going to go out in one of the fields, and maybe they'll feel sorry for me and give me leftovers as they're harvesting the grain. And Naomi says, sure, you go do that. And, and the Bible says in verse 3 of chapter 2 that, that it just so happened that Ruth landed into the field of a man named Boaz. And I love that phrase, it just so happened. Because God gives us that in his word to remind us that nothing just so happens. Nothing touches our life that doesn't first filter through the hand of a sovereign God and we see his directing hand at work in, in Ruth's life because she goes into this field and, and Boaz notices her and, and he begins to give her all this extra grain and to provide for her. And, and so she goes home with this, all this grain, all this food for Naomi and, and she tells her about what a great day she's had. And I, I, I met this guy named Boaz and I was in his field and Naomi says, Boaz? That guy's a part of our family. And that means, Ruth, that he could be your kinsman redeemer. And at that point in chapter 2, we're introduced to this theological reality in the Old Testament. That when a person's husband died, someone else in that family could buy that, that wife, that widow, into their family so that they might provide for them meet their needs, and carry on that family name. To redeem means to pay for. So a kinsman is someone who's a part of a family who comes in and says, hey, I, I want you to be a part of my family. And so Naomi was ecstatic because she says, not only did, did God give us grain, he, he may have given you a husband. And she began to plot and she began to scheme. And, and so you move from despair to the hand of God's direction to desire. And that's kind of a relationship path, isn't it? We feel this longing inside of us that we don't want to be alone. And we have to trust the direction of God. And these desires begin to bubble up within us. And, and so Naomi and Ruth, they concoct a plan. And I'm going to tell you a little more about it, but it's, it's kind of crazy. Naomi tells Ruth to, to go back to where Boaz is at, at nighttime. And after Boaz goes to sleep, to, to kind of lay down at his feet and after he's asleep, to uncover his feet so his feet get cold, so he wakes up. And, and when he wakes up, to ask him to cover her, which symbolically meant she was asking him to provide for her, to be her redeemer. To translate that into our modern terms, Naomi was saying, Ruth, you go back and you ask that man to marry you. <laughs> It's a little countercultural, right? But, but that's what's taking place. 
So in chapter 3, you see that desire flesh out. You see Boaz's response. And in chapter 4 of Ruth, you see devotion lived out. Because Boaz does become the kinsman redeemer for Ruth. And he commits to provide for her and for Naomi the rest of their lives. What an incredible story. It points us to Jesus, of course, because Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. Let me just remind you of that, going through the same path. All of us, we're in despair. That's what sin does to us. We have this problem that separates us from God. It it keeps us from his best, but but God is calling us to him. He's directing our paths toward him. So, So some of you, he brought under the hearing of this message today so that you could be directed into the power of the gospel, so that you could have a relationship with God, because that what will meet the desire of your heart. No other human, no other thing, nothing else in this world can fill those desires, those longings like Jesus. And he's devoted to you. And he demonstrated that by giving his life, by becoming that kinsman kinsman redeemer. What, What a message, a picture of right relationship on this side of heaven and a picture of our eternal relationship with God. And within this, Again, you see some words that we can kind of connect ourselves to that can be cornerstones. So let me just give you those and then we'll pray. There are four cornerstones of relational redemption. What are those four cornerstones? The first one is commitment. And I would suggest to you that we live in a world in which there is a drought of commitment. People are afraid of commitment. We're fickle. We're, we're, we're willing to, to run away and push away. All you've got to do is to look instantly to see how church attendance just dropped to nothing in the midst of what we've been walking through in this recent season. We're, we're quick to, to forego commitments that we may have once expressed. You see that also in what's called no-fault divorce today. You can have a no-fault divorce in Florida. That means that it's nobody's fault. I don't blame you. You don't blame me. Let's just pretend like we were never committed. See, I, I think we've, we've not really understood what commitment is. And, and you can understand commitment by looking no further than the breakfast table, right? And I'm a good southern boy, so I grew up. I mean, we, we're not talk, when we talk about breakfast, I'm talking about serious business. I mean, I'm talking about homemade biscuits and, and real butter with blueberry, blue belly, blueberry jelly. I'm, I'm thinking about grits. Grit, you know what grits are? Oh, thank you, Jesus. I'm thinking about eggs and crispy bacon. Can I get a witness? Thank you, church. But you can look at that plate and you can see because you look at those eggs. And where did the eggs come from? The chicken. And the chicken was involved in that meal. He gave you the egg. But you look at the bacon. Where did the bacon come from? The pig. And the pig was committed to that meal. He gave his everything. He gave his all. And I think a lot of us get involved in relationships, but we're not committed to relationships. You might get involved in church, but you're not committed to church. You you might get involved in in a relationship with another person, but you're not committed in that relationship. And, And I would say that you're not ready for a lasting relationship until you understand the power of loving commitment. Have you understood that in your life? 
Ruth demonstrates that in chapter 1. I told you the story. Let me give you the text. Ruth 1, verse 16. Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. It's the kind of commitment we talk about at a wedding ceremony. When I stand with a couple and, and they exchange their vows and, and then uh, I, I'm going to say to the, to the groom, uh, Greg, uh, the knot's been properly tied. You may now kiss your bride and they smooch in front of everybody and then I have a chance to say, I now pronounce you husband and wife and what God has joined together, let no one, no man, no thing put asunder. That's commitment. And we often read from Ruth chapter 1 and verse 16 and 17, even though this was commitment expressing that kind of relationship between a a daughter-in-law and her mother-in-law. But think about what Ruth said. First of all, she said, this kind of commitment, it's going to affect my location. I'm going to go where you go. I have one son who's already gotten married and He's about to finish his graduate degree, and his wife's a school teacher, and now they're seeking out God's plan for their next step. And I, I, I know this. You know what they've already decided? Wherever one of them goes, both of them are going. That's the way it works. That kind of commitment changes your location. It, it not only changes your location, though, it, it changes your love. What, what do you love? Ruth said, your people are going to be my people. I'm a part of your family now. I'm not going back. It didn't change even her Lord. Your God will be my God. It changed her legacy. You're stuck with me. I'm here to death. I guess I just want to ask you, as we jump into these other words, would the people around you describe you as a person of commitment? Do your friends see you that way? Do they see you as loyal, faithful? Would your employee or your employers see you that way, as committed? Can the people in your church, can they look at you that way, as committed? Not just involved, but as committed. Say, how do I know? Well, one thing to do is to ask this question. Do you go into relationships with escape clauses and assumptions? In other words, man, I'm with you. I'm with you. Unless you do, you know, what that guy over there did, you do that, I'm going to kill you. I'm out of here. Or, well, if she ever treated me like that, if she ever did that, I'd be gone quicker than you could. Do you have these things already set up in your mind that I'm here, but... It's not commitment. Commitment. Second word is confidence. See, we see in in Ruth and Boaz in their relationship the confidence that God is the one directing. This is very important if you're not yet married, if you're a parent or a grandparent and you think you may be speaking into the life of, of someone who desires one day to be married because this biblical ideal is this willingness to wait on the Lord. Remember, we see it even with Adam and Eve, that it was God who brought Eve to Adam. 
We see it in a different way with Abraham and Sarah. As they waited on the Lord, God gave them the desires of their heart. And, and here we see this with Ruth. Ruth was willing to go forward recognizing the things that were her responsibility, but trusting God with the things that were his. One of the reasons we get in the relational messes we're in is because we've taken things that are God's matters into our hands. Remember how Sarah did that? It got her into trouble? That can happen with us too. You force a relationship out of loneliness or out of some of these felt needs or, or some of these desires that you have and you get involved in something that God had no desire to get you involved in. It's kind of as silly as some of the silly pickup lines I've heard about. Did you use a pickup line before? Oh, Michael Renner here, he told me when he and Sharon were, were first getting to know one another, he looked at her and he said, do you have a library card? Because I'm ready to check you out. True story. It's a true story. And then Ray here, oh, Ray Rod, he told, how many years you've been married? 33 years. And last service, he told me that before y'all got to know each other, he looked at you and said, are you a parking ticket? Because you got fine written all over you. I mean, I don't know if that's true or not, but that's, this, this, is, this is real. Um, Pastor Zach Musa is from the nation of Niger, but you may not have known that Heather, his wife, is from the Caribbean. And when he first uh, saw her, he knew that. And he said, hey, are you Jamaican? Because you Jamaican me crazy. I mean, he's, that's Pastor Zach. You know, when Kimberly and I first met, I just went up to her and said, Hi, my name is Will. God's will. <laughs> so doesn't that sound silly? How silly is it when we take matters into our own hands? That's what I want you to understand. A God-honoring relationship must be built on the confidence that he will be your ultimate provider. He will do what only he can do and what he can and should do in your life. In Ruth chapter 2 and verse 10, we see this. Ruth is there in the field and she falls on her face, bowing to the ground and says to him, Boaz, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, all that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. In other words, you've already got a reputation. How you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. I've seen your commitment. The Lord repay you for what you've done and a full reward will be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So Boaz was teaching her a spiritual lesson because Boaz was a Jew Boaz was part of the family of God. So he was saying, you want to know why I'm being kind to you? It's the provision of the God that you're now following. God is doing this for you. You sought refuge under his wings? Well, guess what? He always provides. And that would be the message I would have for you wherever you are in your relationship journey. God will provide for you. And he will always be more than enough to meet your needs according to his riches and glory through Christ Jesus. But you know how he demonstrated his provision? Ruth was hanging out in the right place. She was looking around to see what was in front of her. 
And then she was gleaning everything she could in the moment. So three questions for you. Are you hanging out in the right places? Because you're not going to find the person that God wants for you if you're going somewhere he would never go. And number two, are, are you looking at the people he's already putting in your path? Sometimes we get our minds made up of what we're looking for and we don't see what he's bringing us. But here's the big one. Are you making the most of the moment, gleaning everything you can, even if you're not expecting God to work right then? Remember, Ruth was just there to get food, but God was directing her to her future, and he'll do the same for you. So what do you do? When you wait on the Lord, God provides and for her, he provided Boaz. And what did Boaz do? He began to express his desire. He began to demonstrate kindness to her. He began to dedicate his time. Because you know, that's how you spell love. T-I-M-E. And then he did more than the minimum. And all of this was just building Ruth's confidence that God would provide. Commitment, confidence, there's a third word, it's the word character. Here's what's interesting. The Bible tells us that the whole town already knew what kind of woman Ruth was. Look at Ruth chapter 3 verse 11. Boaz is speaking and he says, For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. She had a reputation. Her character preceded her. Now, I want you to understand something. Your character always comes out when there's relational pressure. So the things you say and the things you do when, when it gets heated up, that's who you really are. In this case, Ruth's character had come out. We see in chapter 3 that she's preparing herself to be presented to Boaz. And she does some things that help us with our character. First of all, she cleanses herself. Now, she does this literally, but, but we do this spiritually every day. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. Renew a right spirit within me. You want to have a healthy relationship with someone else? Ask God to give you a clean heart. Ask him to work in a holy way in your life. Then she consecrated herself. She, she anointed herself with perfume and for oil. And, and for us spiritually, this speaks to us consecrating ourselves to God and say, God, I, I want you to be honored. I want you to be pleased. I want my life to be a pleasing aroma to you. And then she, she changed clothes. Now, when you look at this historically, what we believe is that Ruth took off the clothes of a widow and she put on the clothes of someone that was looking for a husband. Her appearance was different. And if you want that kind of relationship that God wants you to be, then ask him to change your appearance, not physically, but from the inside out. Ask him to make you more like him. Ask him to help, if you're married, ask him to help your spouse see him in you. If you want to be married... If that's the desire of your heart, ask Jesus to be so glorified in your life that others are drawn to him in you. 
And then just live by his guidelines. Watch out for those guardrails. So you have this crazy thing that's taking place there in chapter 3 that Naomi had kind of schemed, and she's the matchmaker, the mother-in-law matchmaker. I mean, that sounds like a horror movie, doesn't it? But she's the matchmaker, and, and so she tells Ruth to go, and you know, right when he goes to sleep, you lay down at his feet, and then you do this terribly cruel thing. You uncover his feet so that they get cold. And then when he gets cold, he's going to wake up and he's going to say, ha! Ah! And, and when he sees you there, then, then you say, oh, could you cover me? And then symbolically, in tradition, what she would be saying is, would you take me to be your wife? I mean, just think about that. She's asking him to marry her in kind of a crazy way. But it was within the guidelines of what was done even among God's children. So what, you, what should you be doing in your relationships? You should be following those guidelines that God's given you. Watching out with those guardrails. Asking him to make you more like him so that you become that person you want to be with. That's a good relational motto. Be the person you want to be with. <laughs> it's kind of a cool moment. Because uh, when Ruth does that, Man, it makes Boaz sparkle. See, Naomi understood something that we need to make sure we understand. Men and women are different. Right? Different things attract us and draw us to one another. And in a society, in a, in a culture, in a world that's kind of putting a lot of gray in between that and saying, hey, you don't have to be different. No, no, no. In Scripture, it's very clear. Men and women are different. But you don't have to be a theologian to understand that. You just have to look at how things work. Even just think about how things work physically in a relationship. Men and women are different. I mean, women, if, if you were to think about something, you know, in, in your kitchen maybe for, for when you want to have a physical relationship, you want a, a woman to be sexually stimulated, you know, women are kind of like a crock pot. It just takes time, kind of slow cooking, kind of in the, in the morning. Be nice, say kind words, encourage, send some flowers, <laughs> go put gas in the car. I mean, all kind of things. Just all day long, and then maybe by evening, maybe, maybe things will heat up. Men, on the other hand, they're in the kitchen too, but they're more like a microwave oven. I mean, just push the button and we're ready to go, right? Anywhere, anytime, my pleasure. All right. In fact, this is such a big deal that it's been over 30 years ago, a guy named William Harley wrote a book. And this isn't true of everybody, but it kind of just makes us think. He took five things that are the top needs of of most women and, and five things that are the top needs of, of most men. And he said, you just need to be aware of these because we're different. And let me just give you those lists. I've given you this before. But for ladies, it's a top five thing. Most women, not everybody, most women. Number one was affection. Just want you to know that you lovingly care. Number two is conversation. Talk to me. And one of the ways we're different is women have, they're just gifted with a lot more words than we are men. And so they want to talk and you have to listen. Number three, honesty and openness. Tell the truth. Number four, I think this is changing. Society has changed this a little bit. But number four, 30 plus years ago was financial support. I want to know that I'm going to be secure. And number five, a commitment to the family. That you really understand there's a family commitment. Now men, 
I'm just telling you, our need list is a little different. So the number one, you have any clue? Number one on the need list for men, here we go, sexual fulfillment. Did not even make the top five for women. Number one every time for men. Men said it's always needed, it's always ready, we're always ready, and it's always appreciated. True story. (laughs) Number two is recreational companion. Someone to do life with me. Number three is physical attractiveness. That you take care of yourself physically. Number four is support. And number five, which I think actually this is probably number one or two in some men's life, is admiration. That respect where you recognize that they're trying hard and they want to be their best for you. Now, why would I go through this list? We're different and you, you have to recognize those differences even as you live out with character that relationship God puts before you. Ruth and Naomi had a plan. I told you about that. Look in verse 8 of chapter 3. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth. I think she said it like that. I am Ruth. Your servant. <laughs> and then listen to this line. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. So again, playing on that biblical principle, the kinsman redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. <laughs> so, <laughs> wives, I'm just saying, you know, if you just go to your husband this evening and you just, I'm just make it practical. If my wife comes to me and says, I am Kimberly. <laughs> I promise I will say, may you be blessed by the Lord. I mean, that's just, that's the way it will work. May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask for all my fellow townsmen know that you're a worthy woman. Hey, Here's the point. She lived a life of character, and God honored that. And by the way, this is one of the only instances in history where a man had cold feet but still went through with the wedding. So, all right. So, commitment, confidence, character, and the last one is covenant. Now, for some of you, you're thinking, covenant, isn't that kind of like commitment? I mean, being all in, being invested, there's a difference here. And I want you to understand this difference because your commitment acknowledges your investment. But a covenant formalizes your commitment between God and others. And in just a moment, I'm going to ask all of us to consider a covenant moment. To to taking these truths that we've learned from Scripture and applying them to our lives in a covenant way. Look in in chapter 4 and verse 7. Here's what's going to happen. Boaz is now at the city gates. He's saying, hey, I, I, want, I want Ruth to be my wife. I'll be her kinsman redeemer. But, hey, you over there, you're actually a little closer in the family. You're next in line. So if, if, if you want Ruth to be your wife, um, I guess I'll have to yield to you. But by the way, uh, she comes with uh, Naomi, her mother-in-law, and they've already got some land and some other things. And, and so the guy's 
talking to him and, and says, no, I don't want that. <laughs> I got my plate full. I don't need another wife. I, I, no, I don't want that. And so there's kind of this moment where Boaz says, prove it. Because when you had a covenant, you had to prove it. It's like signing on the dotted line. Symbolic. And what you would do is you would take off your sandal. And by handing your sandal to the other person, you were entering into a covenantal agreement. It may be coming from in Joshua where God tells the children of Israel, wherever your feet trod, there I will bless. And so maybe that's where it's coming from, but nevertheless, that's how you show the commitment. It's kind of, you know, we have a wedding ring that's a symbol of our commitment. I, I can take this wedding ring off. I never do that. Keeping it close. This doesn't make me married, but it shows other people that I'm in this covenant relationship. That's what's happening here. Look in chapter 4, verse 7. This was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. One drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself... He drew off his sandal. So the other guy took off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the, land, the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech, all that belonged to Chilion and Malon, that's the two sons, also Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of this native place. You are witnesses to this day. This is what's making it a covenant. They're witnesses present. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make this woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Epaphra and be renowned in Bethlehem. And guess what? <laughs> she was renowned in Bethlehem. This woman, <laughs> this woman who, like some of you, she didn't come from a church background. She didn't know the things of God. She couldn't quote the scriptures at the time. But God was taking what was devastation in her life and he was directing her path. and He was giving her the desires of her heart by showing her devoted love. And God's done some of that for some of you, hasn't he? He's demonstrated his redemptive power. And he did that so much so. And she responded in such a way that today, thousands of years later, we're reading out of the Bible her story, and were saying her name. And oh yeah, in Bethlehem, they said her name. Because in Bethlehem, where our kinsman redeemer was born, where Jesus was born, he was born in the line of Ruth and Boaz. And he gives us the opportunity to be a part of his redeemed family, to experience his redemptive love. I want to ask you today that same question that I began with. What area of your life does God need to redeem? For some of you, this is sorely spiritual. He needs to bring you into a relationship with him.
You need to understand that truth, that your sin separates you from God, that God loves you and he doesn't want to be separate from you. So he sent Jesus, and Jesus died on a cross for the forgiveness of your sin, and he paid the price you couldn't pay, becoming your kinsman redeemer, and that he lives today, and he offers you grace and forgiveness. And in just a moment, you need to yield control of your life to him and trust him and make a covenant with him. For others of you, there's, you've got a relationship with God, but you're your daily walk, it needs, to, it needs to experience his redemptive grace. Maybe you've not really, you've been involved but not committed. For others of you, it's your marriage. For others of you, it's that desire to be married. So what I want you to understand is there, there's something for everybody today. What you've got to decide is, am I willing to do what it takes to make it work? Am I willing to give up what I need to give up to make it work? And am I willing to walk forward in faith? On each of your sheet, seats, you have this sheet that has a front and a back. And on one side, it, it says our marriage constitution. On another side, it says my premarital constitution. And I adopted both of these from a, a friend of mine. His name is Ted Cunningham, and he, he writes and he speaks about marriage all across the country and I thought this would be helpful for us today. And, and so if, if, if you're not yet married, whether you're a, a child or a teenager or, or whether you're a single adult, um, I, I would encourage you as I read through this, maybe to look through this premarital constitution and, and decide if this is kind of a commitment, a covenant you're willing to make with God today. But if you're here married, whether it's a few months, like I know some of you are, or whether it's almost... 29 years, like my wife and I, or way more than that. I want to just read these words. So be patient with me, and, and I want you to see if this is a commitment you'd be willing to make today before the Lord. Here's the preamble to the Constitution. When we wed, I committed to love and to cherish you all the days of my life, and I affirm that commitment today. I love you dearly. My goal is to create in our marriage a place of security in which you and I can share everything in safety and honor without fear and grow together in deeper love and intimacy. To confirm my commitment to this goal, I willingly make these five solemn promises to you. Number one, I promise to gain control of my emotions by continually examining my deepest beliefs and striving to make them consistent with what God's word says. I take sole responsibility for my beliefs with the understanding that they, not you, determine my emotions, words, thoughts, and actions. Thus, I lift from you the burden of being responsible for any of my ultimate life quality. I recognize I was created in the image of God, and my identity is in Christ alone. In essence, you're fired as the source of my life. Number two, I, I promise to earnestly seek to, reg to be regularly filled by the Holy Spirit of God. God is my source of joy and love. My love for you will be his love flowing through me. I receive you and your love as overflow from him. I will base the security of our marriage on making Christ my Lord. I will strive to confirm to his image and follow all his commands. Number three, I promise to find God's best in every trial. I'll give you the security of knowing that the negative things that happen in our marriage will not destroy my love for you. I'll not expect perfection from you, but will use even the irritations between us as opportunities to see my blind spots and foster my spiritual growth. I'll call on the power of Christ to root out my weakness. 
Number four, I promise to listen and communicate with love. I will value every word you speak as a window into your heart. I will honor your opinions, feelings, needs, and beliefs so that you'll be free to speak honestly and openly with full security in my love for you. I'll be open with you in communicating my heart and and considering your feelings and needs in all my words. I'll help you solve every disagreement with me until you feel like you're a winner. Finally, I promise to serve you all the days of my life. I will fight all the tendencies towards selfishness in me and focus on keeping you and your needs and your goals before me at all times. I'll continue to hide God's most important words in my heart, serving you willingly and wholeheartedly just as Christ served his disciples, not only in small, humble ways, but also by giving his life for them and for us as well. This is our marriage constitution. If you have the privilege of being here with your spouse today, I'm going to ask you to prayerfully consider making this a covenant before God and us today. I'm going to ask you if you're willing to do as my wife and I are going to do, to come forward, to sign this, and to spend a moment in prayer. At the conclusion of that time, I'm going to come back and pray over all who are gathered here. Some of you may not be here with your spouse, and you want to just take this home, but maybe maybe you would do your part. Maybe you would, even where you are, just sign your desire of this commitment. Others of you may not be there, but you're committed today to say, you know what, we're going to continue this conversation this afternoon at home. We're committed to doing what it takes to, to get to this place in a covenant relationship. But then I want to speak to those of you that have read the back part of this same page. Because there are others like my children and like some who are in this room who are committed to pursuing godly relationships. Why not make a covenant with the Lord and with others today that that's the kind of marriage that you desire? You'll trust God with the timing, but you're going to do your part in the waiting. I want to pray with you, and after you pray, I want to give you a chance to respond as our team leads us in worship. Let's bow our heads to pray. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, can I I first go back and remind you that you're really not prepared to have a relationship with another person that's healthy, until you have a relationship with God that's pursuing holiness. And you do that by trusting in Jesus. I've told you about that several ways in our time together already. So if you're ready to respond to Christ and begin a salvation relationship with Him, would you consider crying out to Him in prayer? Maybe you would say this. Dear Jesus, I know I need you. I'm a sinner and I understand the punishment for sin has always been death I believe you love me and that's not your desire for my life Jesus you died to pay for my sin to give me life to offer me forgiveness So I'm ready to receive that forgiveness. 
from this moment forward, I'm committed to following you. And Jesus, I understand. This covenant with you, it's the most important thing in my life. Thank you for saving me. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, but there's something about that covenant commitment and sharing that with others, just as we're about to do in these relational parts of our life. So if you just prayed that prayer and you began that relationship with Jesus Christ, I want to celebrate with you wherever you are. And I'm not going to embarrass you or draw attention to you, but I do want to welcome you to God's family. So whether you use the words I prayed or use words in your own language, but you prayed and you began that relationship with Christ today, if that's you, would you just lift your hand up wherever you are all across this room, just lifting that up and saying, yes, I began that relationship with Christ. If you did that, welcome to God's family. Now, as we prepare to worship, here's what I recognize. For some of you, this has been one of the hardest messages you'll ever hear. Because you don't have the desire of your heart. Or maybe you're like Naomi and Ruth. You're sitting here having lost the love of your life. And you're just saying, God, how can you redeem this? My prayer for you today as we worship, as we contemplate these words, is that you would rest in that redemptive that redemptive love of Jesus and that you'd pray not only for yourself but you would pray for individuals and for relationships around us that God would be honored even by our desire to be committed but for those of you that are married and for those of you that are not married but desire to make this kind of commitment I want to invite you to come and just stand we've got some pens for you sign these documents pray together pray individually And then I'll come back and pray over us. So, Father, would you use this time for your glory in the name of Jesus.